Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. O Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to Thee. Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to Thee. Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to Thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My name is Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo, and I am the founding director of the Institute. Our speaker tonight is the pastor of St. John the Beloved Catholic Church in McLean, Virginia. He received a Master of Arts degree from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum in Rome in 1996, and was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Arlington the same year. Father Scalia has published articles in various periodicals, including This Rock, First Things, and Human Life Review, and is currently serving as the chaplain for the Arlington Diocese Courage Chapter. He's becoming, I think, something of a, a national figure, and I am very proud to say he's an advisor to the board of the Institute of Catholic Culture and a dear, dear friend. Please welcome back once again Father Paul Scalia. Thank you. Okay, good. Because I'm Italian, I can't hold the mic while I'm speaking. Okay. <laughs> Uh, one parish in our diocese advertised for uh, this this talk. Unfortunately, it was kind of not worded properly, uh, at least not in my estimation. It was uh, Father Scalia and the Errors of Modernism. <laughs> and I'm afraid I um, might be getting a reputation because uh, it was a little over a year ago I, I spoke at another event for the Institute of Catholic Culture uh, out in Potomac Falls, and um, it was on uh, the dangers of modern technology. And here I am again talking about the errors of modernism. And so I might seem to be to be you know just a complete luddite. And and by the way, driving out here tonight, I used to come biking out here uh, because of all the country roads. <laughs> so, but. Uh, this talk tonight, when we talk about the errors of modernism, it's talking about the philosophical system of modernism, not to be confused with the errors of, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to the internal combustion engine, okay, things like that. So, so we want to make that distinction. Uh, modernism is distinct from modern conveniences. At this point, especially, I'm very thankful for air conditioning, right? <laughs> By modernism, uh, is meant something quite different from what we typically take to characterize the modern world. The term modernism indicates an intellectual system that undermines the Catholic faith, and not only the Catholic faith, but really uh, religion itself. In 1907, Pope St. Pius X, whose feast would be today, were it not a Sunday, uh, he issued the encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis on the doctrine of the modernists. In that powerful document, he describes quite accurately the errors of modernist thinking. And he wasn't the first to do so. His predecessors, Leo XIII and Pope Pius IX, uh, whose name in Italian is Pio Nono, uh, which, you know, if you're combating modernism, that's a good sort of name to have. Uh, they had also sought to, to stem the tide of this erroneous thought. Now, I should point out that many theologians and uh, academics would smirk, roll their eyes, and chuckle to think that a priest is giving a presentation on the errors of modernism and that so many people have come to hear it. In their estimation, modernism never really was a problem. It never really existed and certainly doesn't exist now. Uh, many hold that Pius X was really 
sort of chasing after phantasms and when he issued the encyclical on the doctrine of the modernists. Modernism to these men was never really a problem, was never a reality, and certainly isn't now, and certainly not a threat. And this mistaking thinking on their part is made all the worse by the other extreme. Of course, one extreme always produces another. And so to compensate for those who never see modernism anywhere, there's the other extreme that sees modernism everywhere. And you can find them online condemning blessed John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI as modernists. Now, perhaps we can discern the reality and the real presence of modernism by, by working backwards. That is, by calling to mind some things that we, perhaps all of us, have encountered at some point or another, and please God, think these things have struck us as perhaps a little off. And then we can see that actually these are the fruit of modernism. For example, this, this quote from a Catholic priest, it just when I was preparing this talk, somebody sent this to me and said, Father, this sounds a little funny. What do you think of this? I said, well, I think it's modernism. Uh, he, he wrote, the creeds are more mystical, cosmological, and about aligning our lives instead of inside of a huge sacred story. I don't know what that means. Okay, okay. But just file it away, okay? That's his summary of what creeds are. Or, have you ever heard someone say that deep down, all religions are the same? They just differ on the surface, but deep down, they're all the same. Remember Chesterton's uh, response to that one, which is, it's just the opposite. On the surface, all religions tend to look the same. They all have sort of, you know, sacred books, some, some form of liturgy, some sort of moral code. It's deep down that they are very different. Or have you heard people talking about what the church of the future will look like and how we have to sort of move towards the church of the future? Have you heard of people speaking about two different churches, the pre-Vatican II and the post-Vatican II churches? Have you heard people say that, well, creeds are unnecessary. All that dogma, it's unnecessary really for authentic religion. If we could, in fact, if we could get rid of it, just put it aside, then we could really begin to live the religious life. Or that the Jesus we find in the Gospels is not the historical Jesus. Or have you ever been asked, as some friends of mine were, who is Jesus to you? Okay. Well, unfortunately, many, if not most of us, have come across at least you know, some of these things. And they all bear resemblance, as I think we will see, to the doctrine of modernism condemned by Pius X. So what is it? What is modernism? What is this doctrine that he condemned? This is perhaps the trickiest part, because modernism, by its very nature, is very slippery, very hard to get hold of and to define. It's sort of like a chameleon, always changing, always sort of morphing into something else by its very nature. Uh, it's also difficult because the modernist doctrine was never distilled and published as a set creed or list of principles. It couldn't do that according to its own principles, according to its own rules. Pius X called it pervasive, meaning this affects not just one aspect of the Catholic faith, but the entire faith and indeed religion in general. It is, in his terms, the synthesis of all heresies. Now, just to provide a working definition, I think we can't do any better than uh, going to that great teacher, Father John Hardin, and he defines modernism as follows. According to modernism, religion is essentially a matter of experience, personal and collective. There is no objective revelation from God to the human race on which Christianity is finally based, nor any reasonable grounds for credibility in the Christian faith based on miracles or the testimony of history. Faith, therefore, is uniquely from within. In fact, it is part of human nature, a kind of motion of the heart, hidden and unconscious. It is, in modernist terms, a natural instinct belonging to the emotions, a feeling for the divine that cannot be expressed in words or doctrinal propositions, an attitude of spirit that all people have naturally, but that some are more aware of having.
Now, for a little more help, let me quote an oft-misunderstood but staunch opponent of modernism, a man who was alive when it was first coming upon the scene, namely, blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman. He called it liberalism, not modernism, but liberalism in his term. Now, let's not confuse that with you know, the political uh, term. Uh, he means this in the theological sphere. In his autobiography, he wrote, My battle was with liberalism. By liberalism, I meant the anti-dogmatic principle and its developments. This was the first point on which I was certain. I have changed in many things. In this, I have not. From the age of 15, dogma has been the fundamental principle of my religion. I know no other religion. I cannot enter into the idea of any other sort of religion. Religion as a mere sentiment is to me a dream and a mockery. As well, there can be filial love without the fact of a father as devotion without the fact of a supreme being. And then later in his life, when he was elevated to be a cardinal by Pope Leo XIII in what is called the Biglietto speech, and I have copies of it, I want everybody to leave with one of these copies, he said the following, and bear with me, this is one of his most important uh, speeches, and I put it before you because our Holy Father himself has placed such emphasis on uh, John Henry Newman. Pope Benedict doesn't typically preside over beatifications, but he did, obviously, for John Paul II's and Cardinal Newman's. And not only that, but Pope Benedict doesn't travel that much, at least nowhere near as much as his predecessor, but he traveled to England to personally beatify John Henry Newman. So he's very important for our times, and I think this quote will show. For 30, 40, 50 years, I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sorely than now, when, alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. And on this great occasion, when it is natural for one who is in my place to look out upon the world and upon Holy Church as in it, and upon her future, it will not, I hope, be considered out of place if I renew my protest against it, which I have made so often. Liberalism in religion, modernism, is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. And this is the teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste, not an objective fact, not miraculous, and it is the right of each individual to make it say just what strikes his fancy. Devotion is not necessarily founded on faith. Men may go to Protestant churches and to Catholic, may get good from both and belong to neither. They may fraternize together in spiritual thoughts and feelings without having any views at all of doctrine in common or seeing the need of them. Since then, religion is so personal a peculiarity and so private a possession, we must of necessity ignore it in the intercourse of man with man. If a man puts on a new religion every morning, what is that to you? It is as impertinent to think about a man's religion as about his sources of income or his management of his family. Religion is in no sense the bond of society. He accurately describes, I think, what a lot of us encounter. This attitude that religion is just, just a sentiment, it's just a feeling, that there's nothing objectively true about it. And instead of tolerating other persons, and indeed loving other persons, even who are of a different religion, uh, modernism instead says, well, we tolerate all religions because none of them grasp an objective truth. So clearly at the center of this controversy is the issue of dogma whether there is objective truth, not only in the Catholic faith, but in any religion whatsoever, whether indeed religion can ever touch on what is true. So how do we get there? Well, Pius X, in examining modernism, identifies various aspects of it. I'd like to concentrate on three. And I think it's like three steps to get us to the complete undermining of dogma. And the first one is agnosticism. Now, Pius X's use of the term agnosticism differs from our use. When we say somebody is agnostic, or when we refer to agnosticism, 
we usually mean, you know, kind of the attitude of, I don't know, I'm, I really just don't know whether or not there's a God. Which, just by the way, it's, it's a, a huge cop-out, you know? <laughs> and, and a very easy one, because if I'm not sure there's a God, then I can do whatever I want, okay? But I still have the integrity of being sort of Hamlet, you know, torn. I don't know if there's a God. Uh, that way I can live the way I want. Now, Pius X is not using agnosticism the way that, that we typically use it. What he means by this is a philosophical principle, namely that we cannot know God by human reason, that the human faculty of reason cannot come to know that there is a God or any of the aspects of God. It is a radical and complete rejection of the ability of the human intellect to grasp the divine. He writes, According to this teaching, human reason is confined entirely within the field of phenomena, that is to say, to things that appear and in the manner in which they appear. It has neither the right nor the power to overstep these limits. Hence, it is incapable of lifting itself up to God and of recognizing his existence even by means of visible things. So what agnosticism does, in Pius X's uh, explanation, it in effect removes God, the supernatural, and religion in general from the sphere of discussion. Because human reason cannot touch on these things, it doesn't make any sense for us to talk about whether... Uh, any of it might be true. There's no point in discussing them, and there's certainly no point in using such things as a standard for public conduct or establishing a society. So by way of agnosticism, what you have is a radical division between science and faith. And over here in science is everything that can be measured, weighed, counted, touched. And over here in faith is mere sentiment. Faith concerns only the interior sentimental realities. Science only concerns what can be measured. And the two never meet. Now, if this concern of, of Pius X sounds familiar to you, and I hope it does, it's because it's the same issue that Pope Benedict addressed in 2006 in Regensburg. Go back and reread, right, reread uh, our, our Holy Father's Regensburg address. It's the one that got him in so much trouble. And he was addressing precisely this issue, the radical division between science and faith. So first is agnosticism, which rejects the human ability to know God by reason. The second, what Pius X calls vital imminence. Vital imminence. What does this mean? Well, to account for the reality of religion and devotion, the modernists needed to provide something other than human reason. They said, well, human reason can't touch on supernatural truths. So how then do we account for this phenomenon of religion and of devotion? Well, they seize on what Pius X calls vital imminence, the divine within man. Religion for them is nothing more than a manifestation of this presence of the divine to each person. It is radically individualistic. It is the presence of the divine in each one of us that stirs up and makes some sentiment felt. This is what Newman calls a sentiment and a taste. Vital imminence makes religion, in the words of John Harden that I read before, a kind of motion of the heart. He's quoting somebody else. Hidden and unconscious, a natural instinct belonging to the emotions, a feeling for the divine. That is all that religion is. That's the vital imminence, sort of making the divine felt within you. George Tyrrell, a former Jesuit priest and one of the most outspoken modernists, put it this way, The truth of religion is in man implicitly as surely as the truth of the whole physical universe is involved in every part of it. Could he read the needs of his own spirit and conscience, he would need no teacher. Mark that well. If you could read the needs of your own spirit and conscience, you would need no teacher. Which means if you just step forward and say, well, I can read the needs of my own spirit and conscience, so I don't need a teacher, which is, of course, what many have already concluded and thus rejected any teaching authority whatsoever. 
You can see already how this works. Agnosticism removes any ability to argue the truth of religion philosophically or intellectually. Vital imminence tells us that God is within every one of us, and if we could only get in touch with that vital imminence, we would need no teacher. Therefore, no church, no dogma, no creeds. There is no objective truth and no authority, therefore, in religion. So given this theory of vital imminence, that the divine, in effect, reveals itself to each one of us, kind of like the force, you know, in Star Wars, what then becomes of the church, of scripture, of tradition, of dogma, of the sacraments? In short, what, what happens to all of those elements of a system that presumes God revealing himself outside of us and revealing an objective and real truth independent of us? Well, According to this modernistic thought, the church, for example, becomes simply a gathering of those who have gotten in touch, if you will, with a vital imminence within them, and just sort of getting together so that they can you know, make it better known or experience it more profoundly. In other words, the church, in this way of thinking, is not a reality established by God, but it is something that kind of comes about because each one of us has been getting in touch with that vital imminence. What happens to dogma? Pius X writes, Dogma is born of a sort of impulse or necessity by virtue of which the believer elaborates his thought so as to render it clear to his own conscience and that of others. So dogma, instead of being something objective to which we assent, dogma becomes just, you know, I'm just kind of reflecting on this emotion or the sentiment I have, and I articulate it so that I understand it better and so that you can understand it better too. And that's all the dogma is. The sacraments are the resultant of a double impulse or need. The first need is that of giving some sensible manifestation to religion. The second is that of expressing it. And so that's all the sacraments are. They don't actually confer grace. They are just sort of a manifestation, an expression, an outward expression of the experience that is already within each individual. The church, as I said before, has its birth in a double need. First, the need of the individual believer to communicate his faith to others. So the only reason we're together as a church is so that each of us can simply tell the other what we've experienced individually. And secondly, when the faith has become common to many, the need of a collectivity to form itself into a society and to guard, promote, and propagate the common good. And so the church becomes not the mystical body of Christ, but the collective conscience of all of us. Sound familiar? This is how many would actually describe the church. And likewise, the scriptures. The scriptures are just another expression of the divine, much like any other religious text. The modernists would and will sometimes sound faithful and orthodox because they'll say, yes, the scriptures are inspired by God. What they're silent on is that they, they think everything else is inspired by God too. But that is where modernism gets so slippery and so hard to track because dogma serves its purpose. The expressions of the faith serve the purpose of modernism as long as they want it to. But once that individual experience of the divine within, once that changes... Well, then they move on. But for a time, the modernist may actually sound quite orthodox. But not for any objective truth or power that things like the sacraments or dogma or even a high liturgy might carry. No, a modernist might sound orthodox and faithful simply because these things happen for a time to align with whatever the vital imminence is prompting within him, with whatever felt need that is. They could and would indeed need to change should the divine within the person prompt something different. Which leads to the third pillar. First is agnosticism. Second, vital imminence. Third, evolution. Now consider the era of modernism's ascent. Contemporaneous with it, of course, was Darwin. And so this whole theory of evolution coming upon the scene, and it's not that much of a leap to see that many saw fit to apply the theory of evolution to any other discipline, even to dogmas. And that's what modernists do. So Pius X says that evolution is practically their principal doctrine. Practically their principal doctrine. Father Alfred Loisy, 
a priest excommunicated by Pius X, a leading modernist, stated, The avowed modernists form a fairly definitive group of thinking men united in the common desire to adapt Catholicism to the intellectual, moral, and social needs of today. Sound familiar? <laughs> I'm reminded of someone that I was speaking to as counseling and trying to draw out of a sinful situation, and the person looked at me and said, Come on, Father, it's the 90s. Okay. Like, there's an expiration date on the Sixth Commandment, apparently. You know, you turn, you turn it over, it says, you know, expires 1989. That's it. Okay. But this is still very much in the mind of people to update Catholicism to the culture instead of transforming the culture with our faith. Father Wazi goes on in another place saying, the fundamental principle of modernism is the possibility, the necessity, and the legitimacy of evolution in understanding the dogmas of the church, including that of papal infallibility and authority, as well as in the manner of exercising this authority. No dummy. He understood. If I can get that to evolve, then everything else is up for grabs. Of course, once you have evolution of dogma, uh, there's really no dogma whatsoever. A standard or truth that evolves is no standard whatsoever. Imagine if today a foot is 12 inches and tomorrow it's 13. And that's your standard, or better yet, that's the standard that the contractors are going to use to build your new house. Okay? And each day it's changing. You're going to have a funny looking house. And unfortunately, we've had some funny looking things in the past 40 or 50 years of the church because of this whole concept of evolution of dogma. Not a development of doctrine, as Cardinal Newman so famously teaches, but an evolution, in other words, one thing becoming something different, something that it wasn't before. Modernism has imbued the world and many in the church with the notion that the creed from centuries ago cannot possibly be the creed for today that dogma as an expression of vital imminence must not only be changeable, it must be constantly changing. And since I've inflicted some quotes from Pius X and Cardinal Newman, who are some pretty heavy stuff, let's lighten things up a little bit with G.K. Chesterton. Okay. From orthodoxy, and, and mind you, G.K. Chesterton <laughs> never went to college. Now, kids, you should go to college. But... Uh, <laughs> Chesterton never did, but he had such a clear intellect and saw things so clearly. And he writes, An imbecile habit has arisen in the modern controversy of saying that such and such a creed can be held in one age, but cannot be held in another. Some dogma, we are told, was credible in the 12th century, but is not credible in the 20th. You might as well say that a certain philosophy can be believed on Mondays, but cannot be believed on Tuesdays. You might as well say of a view of the cosmos that it was suitable to half past three, but not suitable to half past four. What a man can believe depends upon his philosophy, not upon the clock or the century. If a man believes in an unalterable natural law, he cannot believe in any miracle in any age. If a man believes in a will behind law, he can believe in any miracle in any age. An imbecile habit, well put by Chesterton. Now, a curious aspect of this principle of evolution is that it doesn't happen all by itself, which is, of course, a curious thing about the theory of evolution in general. If it is inevitable, as its advocates say, then why does it need advocates? We do not find any advocates of gravity or, or the passing of the seasons, but we do hear people advocating, defending evolution, and promoting the belief, if you will, in evolution. We see the Darwinian bumper stickers, you know. How true and inevitable can evolution be if it needs its defenders? And so it is with the evolution of dogma. The modernists, since they saw that evolution was not just inevitable, but a good thing for dogma, that it constantly had to be changing, then what does that mean? Well, if you're a progressive theologian and you're dissenting, from the church, from defined dogma, and you're promoting something new, you are providing a service to the church because you are moving the evolution along. And that is why so many modernists remained within the church. And still today, so many who will advocate things contrary to Catholic teaching will remain within the church and advocate those things and claim to be good Catholics because, really, in, in their mind, they think this is necessary. 
they've accepted this modernist notion of the evolution of dogma. The dogmas don't just develop, they change radically. They advocate it from within because that's what's necessary to spur on this evolution. So in call to action or future church or we are church advocate the ordination of women or the approval of homosexual relationships, they really see themselves as providing a service to the church. Some actually have embraced the label the loyal opposition, which is a political term from Great Britain, to express what they are about. They are opposed to the magisterium, but they see themselves as loyal because they're bringing along the evolution of things. And so, beginning with agnosticism, which rejects the capacity of human reason to know God, to know the divine, and then going to that vital eminence, which really makes every single one of us a little pope, saying that the divine within us is what creates religion and dogma. And then finally passing to this, this principle of evolution, we see how modernist thought really robs Catholicism uh, of any certainty, any clarity, but then religion in general, because no religion can claim any certainty or any benefit to souls, any absolute benefit to souls according to this thought. Allow me some observations on fundamental patterns in modernism, which necessarily includes an acknowledgement of what the modernists get right. Because no heresy is absolutely wrong. Every heresy contains some element of the truth, which is why it can be accepted. Rat poison is 99% good stuff. It's the 1% that gets them. And that's the way heresies work, too. Modernism basically divides which should remain united and combines which should be distinct. So first, there is an element of truth to the argument that human language cannot adequately express God. Absolutely right. How can we, limited, and how can our limited language express the unlimited? How can our natural faculties express adequately and fully the supernatural. And so the Catechism observes, in speaking about God, our language is using human modes of expression. Nevertheless, it really does attain to God himself, though unable to express him in his infinite simplicity. And later the Catechism acknowledges again, we do not believe in formulae, but in those realities they express which faith allows us to touch. And then quoting St. Thomas, the believer's act of faith does not terminate in the propositions, but in the realities which they express. An acknowledgement of the limited nature of human language. All the same, we do approach these realities with the help of formulations of the, of the faith which permit us to express the faith and to hand it on, to celebrate it in community, to assimilate and live on it more and more. So though limited, our language about the divine is necessary in order to live the faith. So clearly there's a distinction between our language and the realities they express. Modernism's error is to divide our language, our capacity to speak about things intelligibly from any objective reality and claim that human reason, human language, completely lacks that ability. Which means that all words in religion really are up for grabs. They can be changed. They can mean whatever they really want them to mean. This is an abuse of language. There's a division likewise uh, that modernists make between two ways of knowing. The extrinsic, we can call it, and the intrinsic. Or um, a division between the empirical and the philosophical, we can call it the division between science and wisdom. The division I spoke of earlier, between what, what can be measured and weighed and calibrated and whatever else, the phenomena that appear to us and that we can handle and touch. A division between that kind of knowledge and the kind of knowledge that is philosophical, that is more interior, reflecting on things. The kind of knowledge that is characteristic of wisdom. There's an absolute separation of these things. Now, there's always a distinction between these two. These are two ways that we come to know the world and even come to know God. But what modernism does is it divides them completely. And, of course, this is with us still, which is why one of the myths in the modern world is that somebody who has a deep faith can't really be a scientist. And somebody who's a good scientist couldn't possibly be a believer. Of course, that's nonsense, because these two ways of knowing, science and wisdom, 
are distinct but not separate, not divided. In the tradition, in Western tradition, man has always viewed these as two different ways of knowing, but both genuine forms, each having its proper sphere. Modernism divides them. And the loser there, of course, is always wisdom, because science claims the only right to objective truth and therefore for people to have a common ground of discussion. One result of this is to reject the involvement of faith in the discipline of history, the study of history. Faith is restricted to just the interior sense or sentiment only, and therefore it has nothing to say about the truths of history. And so one of the things that modernism has produced is two messiahs, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. There is the Jesus of history which is only, can only be known by scientific investigation of history. And that is just Jesus of Nazareth and what we know about him is very little because we won't accept any other form of knowing. And then there's the Christ of faith who's worked all of these miracles and done all of these wonderful things. But whether he existed in history, well that's up for grabs. And so th there's this curious sort of schizophrenia in the modernist mind. He has great science in his mind, but at the same time, he has faith, and, uh, but they might contradict each other. So the Jesus of history may or may not have existed as we think he did, but the Christ of faith, yes, he's everything that we think he is. So there's a schizophrenia in this whole idea that our Lord could have like the, these, these two lives, be two messiahs. The division, again, enables the modernists to blend in to the orthodox atmosphere. They may affirm our Lord's many titles. They may be very devoted to certain uh, aspects of our Lord, and for that reason, they may appear as believers. But in the end, they understand those aspects of our Lord, and they're devoted to those things just really because of personal sentiment and opinion, not because they accept them as objectively true. Another uh, pattern in modernism is that it tends to combine what ought to remain distinct. It tends to combine what ought to remain distinct. For example, there are certain things in the church that change and are changeable. Just as from a superficial viewpoint, we know that things today are not the same as in the ancient church. There are some things that have changed throughout the course of the centuries. There is a distinction, therefore, between what is changeable in the church and what is unchangeable in the church. The modernist eliminates the distinction, and everything becomes changeable. Everything is up for grabs. This is really just sloppy philosophy, because really, starting with Aristotle, I mean like introduction to Aristotle, you learn how to account for change in the world. How can something change and still remain what it is? The modernists say, well, in effect, it can't. Because things have changed, they must constantly be changing, and there's nothing unchangeable. So rather than distinguishing legitimate change or development, which is precisely what Cardinal Newman does, modernism instead concludes that since some things change, the fundamentals are also therefore changeable, and indeed ought to change according to the principle of evolution. Hence, we have two different churches. You know, you have the pre-Vatican II and the post-Vatican churches, and you have some people who think the church ended at Vatican II, and you have other people who think the church didn't begin until Vatican II. And then there's the 80% of us who are kind of caught in the middle uh, of that battle. And what is Pope Benedict, who is really fighting against modernism, although he doesn't call it by that name, he proposes the hermeneutic of continuity. It is the same church. It is the same church. And we need to begin interpreting the church's life according to this hermeneutic of continuity. I want to make mention also of language. There's a great book by Joseph Pieper, um, it's actually required reading for all who come to Institute of Catholic Culture talks. Um, <laughs> called Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. And Father William Smith, a uh, great moral theologian up in Dunwoody, Dunwoody Seminary for years since died, he had a great line. He said, all social engineering is preceded by verbal engineering. The modernists understood that very well. And so they manipulated words, and really they emptied words of their significance, uh, emptying language of its power so that it could be employed for whatever they wanted to employ it for. 
regarding scripture, for example, Pius X points out that the modernists will affirm the Bible as inspired, thus leading many to regard them as orthodox. And then he says, but in all this, we have mere verbal conjuring. <laughs> verbal conjuring. They're just playing with words. When they say inspired, they don't mean what we have meant by that. This calls to mind the importance, and those of you who are in, involved in religious education, the importance of good Catholic vocabulary, that we use the words the tradition gave us and we use them in the proper sense so that we're all on the same page, we all have the same vocabulary, but also so that words maintain their meaning and that we're not abusing the language that has been entrusted to us. And again, as regards the issue of truth, Pius X criticizes the verbal engineering of the modernists. He says, we speak of truth itself. For that other, purely subjective truth, the fruit of the internal sense and action, if it serves its purpose for the play of words, is of no benefit to the man who wants, above all things, to know whether outside himself there is a God into whose hands he is one day to fall. What a pastoral heart this pope had. Pius X, we parish priests are like to remind you, uh, Pope St. Pius X was a parish priest. Uh, there's a great story of him receiving several priests at the Vatican, and he went and he asked each of them, you know, well, what do you do? And one guy said, well, I'm, I'm the judicial vicar for my diocese. And the next guy said, well, I, I teach dogma in the seminary. He went to the next guy. He said, I'm the bishop's delegate for priests. And, and then he goes to the last one, and he says, I have the care of souls, which is a term describing a parish priest. At which point, Pius X knelt in front of that priest and asked for his blessing. This last quote from him reveals a pastor's heart. Why is modernism dangerous? Not just because it's bad philosophy and bad theology, not just because it leads to kind of some really silly theories, but because it puts souls at risk. Listen to this again. What he's concerned about is the man who wants, above all things, to know whether outside himself there is a God into whose hands he is one day to fall. That is the man that he's concerned about. That's us. We want to know the truth about God because we know that one day we are to fall into his hands. We want certainty of that. So back to one of the questions that I put before you at the beginning. Who is Jesus to you? Now this question was asked of a group of Catholic men. Each was invited to respond as uh, they went around the table. It came to one man who replied with more than a little bewilderment. He says, well, I, I hope it's the same Jesus as in the Gospels. <laughs> now, that might seem to be the most obvious answer to you and to me, probably because the question is a silly one. But for the modernist, the question is legitimate because we don't know the truth about Jesus in their estimation and only the vital imminence that divine within us can give us an answer. And so there are as many Jesuses as there are persons. And whatever you like, well, you can construct your Jesus to that liking. If you like to party, then you'll like your Jesus to party. <laughs> you should be ashamed if you got that joke. Okay? <laughs> Modernism, as I said before, represents a threat not only for Catholicism, but for all religions. We're living in a time in which... It's irreligious because we simply do not think that the divine, the supernatural can be attained by us, can be known by us. And we fall into grave errors, grave superstitions because of that. Let me conclude by quoting once again Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman. Surveying our times, he remarked, at all times, the enemy of souls assaults with fury the church which is their true mother, and at least threatens and frightens when he fails in doing mischief. And at all times, in all times, have their special trials which others have not. And so far, I will admit that there were certain specific dangers to Christians at certain other times which do not exist in this time. Doubtless, but still admitting this, still... I think that the trials which lie before us are such as would appall and make dizzy even such courageous hearts as St. Athanasius, St. Gregory I, St. Gregory VII. 
and they would confess that dark as the prospect of their own day was to them severally. Ours has a darkness different in kind from any that has been before it. That is a clear call to arms from a man who fought nobly in this arena for all his life. As he says elsewhere, never did Holy Church need champions against it, against modernism more sorely than now, when alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. So may our time spent here this evening examining this heresy strengthen our defense against it and our resolve likewise and more importantly to proclaim the true doctrine clearly that all things will be restored in Christ. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father Scalia. Uh, we do have a handout tonight that Father Scully has provided. Does anyone want it? <laughs> um, a short break for those that need to, to leave, and we'll come back together in about five minutes. Um, and I think Father Scully is also going to return to the Institute of Catholic Culture to give a book study on Joseph Pieper's abuse of language, <laughs> abuse of power. Is that right, Father Scully? <laughs> um, is that mic working? I can't hear you. <laughs> Father, it seems to me that moral relativism is modernism by another name. Is this true, or is there a distinction between moral relativism and modernism? Uh, not really much of a distinction. I think you're right that moral relativism really is simply modernism applied to the moral sphere. I, getting back to this whole thing of agnosticism, that the only thing that we can know with any certainty is what can be measured, what can be uh, you know, visible tangible phenomena. When we're dealing with morality, w w what does that mean? Morality is, is basically acting in a human manner. That is known by uh, philosophical reflection, by receiving you know, the tradition of our elders. And, but modernism eliminates those as fonts of, of knowledge. And what's interesting is that probably the first modernists, I, I don't think they were hedonists. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think that they were vicious people in the sense of being full of vice. But they certainly laid the groundwork for moral relativism because now, on what ground do we argue for any moral action? Basically, modernism declares it out of bounds for human reasoning. So you're, you're absolutely right that moral relativism is, is one of the rotten fruits of, of modernism. And you know what? I kind of salute the moral relativists. For, <laughs> is this, this is being recorded? Um, <laughs> Let me explain. Um, because like Nietzsche, they simply took this to the logical extreme. And so they see the, the result of, of these principles. If the only things that we can know are true are in the, the realm of the physical sciences, then anything goes. Then we can't know any form of behavior as true or untrue or wrong. Hi, Father. Um, what happened to the oath against modernism? It seems that now more than ever we would need it in the, in the church. Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I think uh, th th there was an oath against modernism that clerics would need to take, and I, I don't know, maybe anybody teaching theology or, or whatever else. I think if we were to have something like that, we would need to change the language a little bit so that it's clear and sort of updated, you know, to address uh, the problems that we're facing now. There is, in Catholic faculties, you know, there is the requirement that they get a mandatum from the bishop. You know, the thing about the oath against modernism is that, uh, in a sense, it shouldn't need to be taken at all. The profession of faith and the oath of fidelity should suffice. And that every priest, every man before he's ordained a deacon, every priest before he becomes a pastor, every man when he becomes a bishop, they have to make the profession of faith and take the oath of fidelity. That should cover it. So I don't know exactly when it fell out, but I imagine that there was an element that said, well, modernism wasn't really a problem anyway, but I think there are other things to be considered in whether or not we have that. A whole host of other things that we could probably incorporate in it. How would you characterize the church's reaction to Pope St. Pius's encyclical? Was it like Humane Vitae or? No. I, I think it was people were in lockstep with it. In fact, if, if anything, they, they, they may have been too aggressive at, at, in certain places with the enforcement of it. But again, modernism is so sort of slippery a thing that exactly how do you enforce this? That was one difficulty. 
So there, there was not a, a huge dissent. And the big dissenters, Tyrrell and Wazid, they were excommunicated. So I kind of settled it uh, there for them. But, but th there wasn't the resistance that we saw with Humana Vitae, that's, that's for sure. Could you speak, Father, uh, a little bit about how modernism has affected the liturgy and the life of the mm. church in prayer? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. And uh, the, the question is, how did the uh, modernism affect the liturgy and the life of the church in that regard? You know, the, the man who really we should be following on this, of course, is, is our Holy Father. And we should have been following him on this before he was a Holy Father. Uh, because he's written so well on the liturgy and he's talking, you know, he's, he's done so much and said so much in an attempt to sort of heal the liturgical divisions that we've suffered in the past 40 years. I think a lot of people seized on the modernist view of the liturgy, which was that the liturgy is simply uh, to give expression to that interior sentiment or feeling. And so the question becomes not, what is the best way for us to glorify God? The question instead became, what do we like? What speaks to modern man? Dietrich von Hildebrand, by the way, I mentioned him before, he says, what do we mean by modern man? There's no such thing as modern man. Okay, there's man, and man who exists in the modern world, that's about all you get. But it's not as though, you know, we morphed into something else once modernity arrived. But that's one way that modernism, I think, was very destructive, is that when liturgical changes were made, uh, a lot of people ran with them in all sorts of directions, uh, according to the modernist mindset of, well, well, let's adapt this to the age. And, of course, what we find is, especially among young people, if I walk into Mass and it's just like everything else in the culture, if it's been adapted to the age, then why do I need to go? <laughs> why can't I just go somewhere else and get the same thing? Cardinal Ratzinger has a great line in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy. The incarnation does not mean doing whatever we want. In other words, by becoming incarnate, God established himself a certain form of worship. We can worship however we want. There is an objective truth to worship. I think that would surprise most people to hear, because we think worship, well, you know, you just kind of you know, worshiping in however, whatever way you think is right. That is really the modernist mindset, and I, it's really seeped into the church. There were many uh, modernists intellectually, but most people just sort of breathed the air of modernism and sort of kind of got these ideas that they didn't know where. And this is one of the most prevalent as regards the liturgy, is that it has to be adapted to us. And again, there's a truth there, that the liturgy does have to be human. We do have to be able to enter into it. But ultimately, the liturgy is not for us. It is for the glory of God. And the more we glorify God, the more human we become. The glory of God is man fully alive, says St. Irenaeus. So the modernist atmosphere and um, the ideas that are floating around certainly infected the liturgical craziness that the church has seen. Can you please explain the difference between modernism and postmodernism? <laughs> you know, honestly, I've, I've been trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, so can I explain the difference between modernism and postmodernism? I think, as best as I can tell, because some people, there's modernism, there's neo-modernism, and then there's postmodernism. This is, you know, getting into more, you know, philosophical distinctions that, than I prepared for, but... I think that you know, the postmodernism really is just shrugging off the whole venture of reason. I mean, the modernists still sort of tinkered with devotion and reason, but in the postmodernist world, you have just kind of a, a great hostility to any of that and say, what's the point? I mean, at least as far as I can see that. We'll take just one or two more questions, but uh, I did forget to uh, tell you all that we will be having a three-part series by Dr. Marshner on the roots of modernism as a follow-up to this uh, in our next cycle, our next calendar, which is coming out shortly. And we'll be taking much of what Father Scalia has said tonight and diving deeper into it and seeing its background and also making distinctions like that that you'd like to, to know about. And for the record, I, I see Dr. Marshner's poster here. What am I doing here? Okay. Because <laughs> he, I mean, he's, he's very, very good. <laughs> 
The way I see it is that, that Satan has not changed his approach since Eve. It's, do you want to make your own decisions and you be God for yourself? But with the modern world and modernism and technology and everything, everybody's saying, yeah, I can have my own relationship with God. I can do my own thing. I can make my own decisions. And he's just winning a lot of battles that way. Well, one, one scene in the Gospels that I think might be helpful in this regard, and it touches also on the question about the liturgy, is our Lord speaking to the Samaritan woman when he says to her, you worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. What a frightening thing, because we all want to worship in spirit and truth, as our Lord says, and he has established just that. What happens when we start inventing our own worship is that, uh, well, there's somebody else out there who's more than willing to help us, okay? So once we depart from true worship, from the true God, it's not as though we're entering neutral ground. There is somebody else out there who's only too happy to guide us. So what happened when the Israelites left true worship at Mount Sinai? Well, they fell into idolatry and all sorts of depravities. The agnosticism, the rejection of being able to know what is true and worship what is true, that leads us down a very dark path. As a teacher, uh, I have lots of students who come to me um, asking for advice about how to deal with their friends who have been raised um, in moral relativist families, um, and my students believe in an absolute and objective truth. Um, my question is, do you have any, maybe a one-liner or some concrete example that I can pass on to my students um, that's simple so that young people can understand? All this talk is, of course, very interesting, but we're mature adults and or uh, mature most of young us. people here. Right. <laughs> if I had a one-liner, I would have used it already. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think really it gets to this question, what does it mean to be human? Is there a human way of living, a human way of acting? I've spoken a lot about Cardinal Newman this evening, and, and St. Augustine, too. I mean, really, by going in this interior reflection, they discovered that the conscience within us really is seeking the right way to live. And so is there a human way of living? Is there an objective truth about that? There is. And God came into the world to reveal it to us. Christ fully reveals man to himself. And so once we lose sight of the objective truth of God, we've also lost sight of the objective truth about ourselves. So an error about the creator leads to an error about the creature. So I think that's one thing you can keep in mind. You can kind of wordsmith it however you will. Another thing is, I mean, really to take them to the logical, how far do they want to go? Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, was really, it seems to me, like the only one who was really willing to take it all the way. And uh, he died in an insane asylum. <laughs> and there, there was a comment about one, from one of his visitors that he seemed to be happy that way. <laughs> Which actually, you know, he was all about the rejection of reason and, and, just, and, the, and the will to power, which is what moral relativism is. And what's the ultimate rejection of reason? Insanity. And so it's really the fulfillment of his philosophy. Now, as I said, he's the only one, I think, that was willing to take it all the way. How many people who really buy into moral relativism are willing to say anything goes? They're not. They just get mad at us because we draw the line earlier than they do. Okay. <laughs> But everyone draws the line somewhere, whether we're talking about, uh, well, let's, you know, marriage, the marriage issue. Okay, well, who can't get married? <laughs> That's kind of the question now. It's not a matter of who can get married, who can't get married? And having them explain it themselves and force them into a situation which they have to acknowledge limits somewhere. And once they've acknowledged limits, then you can, please God, bring them those limits <laughs> closer and closer in. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father Scalia. Okay, thank you. God bless. Father, give us his blessing. Please, Please stand. stand. Calling to mind that our devotion to the truth is so that we can have a more profound relationship with the triune God. We now go before our Heavenly Father and we pray to him in the words our Savior gave us. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, St. Joseph, Pope St. Pius X. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank Go you in all peace. for coming tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.